It's been 130 plus years now that we first found ourselves becoming what we now call Tabernacle Baptist Church. In the early 1970s, we were faced with a decision like so many other urban congregations. Do we go to the suburbs where we know people are moving because of desegregation of schools, or do we stay firmly planted where our roots are? The church made a courageous decision to stay. Today, in the year 2020, we find ourselves again at a crossroads. And as we do so, we find ourselves wondering how do we help acknowledge and address the need and the pain that we see um, out there in our community with our neighbors. The pastoral staff gathered together a little more than a week ago and effectively wrote a love song. Just three little phrases that were meant to send a message to our community, a message that speaks to acknowledgement of pain, one that was certainly intended to offer some healing. Here's what it says. We see you. We stand with you. Black lives matter to us. That sign's created a lot of interesting conversation over the course of these last few days. We're gathering back together, most of the pastoral staff members, along with Jackie Green, former pastoral staff member, now uh, chaplain extraordinaire uh, in Roanoke and also current member of Tabernacle Baptist Church to talk a little bit about the thought process that went behind this message that we wanted to send our neighbors. But so much more importantly, we want to go deeper into conversation about where we see God at work and where we are praying God will be at work. Thanks for joining us. Hello, friends. My name is Sterling Severns, and I am pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church in the heart of Richmond, Virginia's fan district. Had the good fortune of being at Tabernacle for about 17 years, and I am here in a Zoom room with some of my favorite people in the entire world. Uh, let's just go around the circle real quick and, and talk about who we are, and we'll start with seniority. We'll go to Judy first. Who are you? Hi, I'm Judy Fisk. I am the Minister of Music and Worship at Tabernacle Baptist Church, and I have been there for 40 years. Um, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, so I am a Virginian through and through, and um, am 69 years old, so I've lived a lot of, uh, of life here. Thank you. Jerusha, uh, how about you? Who are you? Hi, I'm Jerusha, and I am the Children and Families Minister at Tabernacle Baptist Church, maybe coming close to maybe two years. Um, I'm also the Institutional Chaplain at Flavana Correctional Center for Women. It's a prison which is considered level three, or some people even consider it max. Thank you, Fran. And Meg, how about you? I'm Meg Lacey. I'm the Associate Pastor at Tabernacle. I've been here about two and a half years now, um, and originally from Tennessee and have lived all over the Southern United States. We're glad you're here. And Jackie, what are you doing here? Who are you? Hello, I'm Jackie Green. I came to Tabernacle in 2017 as a pastoral intern, and I am currently serving as staff chaplain here in Roanoke, Virginia. 
for the last, oh gosh, seven months now. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm happy to be here. I can't believe it's already been that long. Thanks for making time for us and being with us here. Jackie, uh, as a former staff member, is beloved among uh, the entire congregation, and it's good to have the reunion with you. Um, so uh, let's launch in. Thanks, thanks for participating, everybody, today. And for those of you that are watching, we're hoping that today's dialogue among this circle of friends and colleagues will be something that will provoke and prompt some good, healthy uh, dialogue in the days ahead. Uh, the initial um, purpose of, of creating this was uh, some feedback that we've received about the sign at the church, which I'll put here on the screen for you all to see. Uh, last week, uh, the pastoral staff met at length, and that, in, that, it, that would include Hope Cutchins, who is our communication coordinator slash financial secretary, as well as uh, April Kennedy, our community uh, ministry director, and then um, lastly, Houston, our summer pastoral intern. And so those in this room, with the exception of Jackie and the others I just mentioned, spent a long time uh, really conversing about what we felt uh, we, we needed to do to respond to the, the need and some of the hurt that we were seeing just outside, literally outside the walls of the church. And so the sign, as you see, says, we see you. We stand with you. Black lives matter to us. And then, of course, it, it lists the live stream. Um, Judy, can you? Uh, so that's the reason we're getting together today. Uh, <laughs> at first. But we decided we can go. We can do better than that. We'll go deeper. But let's at least start with the sign. Judy, how is it that we came to the verbiage on the sign? And what are your thoughts on it? Um, we worked pretty hard thinking about what to put on the sign. Um, and one of our desires was to acknowledge the fact that we were seeing the pain that was going on in the streets and that as a white church primarily, although we are fairly diverse church, um, but that we needed to acknowledge the fact that um, the institutional church sees what's going on in the community and acknowledges it. So when we said we see you and we stand with you, it was an acknowledgement of looking at the pain that was going on in the African-American community and acknowledging that we see it and we recognize it and we're willing to stand with them as they walk through this pain. That at Black Lives Matter to us was because um, Black lives were obviously not being valued. Um, and it was important that we say that Black Lives Matter. Um, the African-American community has been saying Black Lives Matter now for several years. I'm not sure how many, but at least three or four. Um, And it was time for um, white institutions to begin to say Black Lives Matter to us also. Um, I avoided the at Black Lives Matter, partially because I feel like that, I I put the letters up. (laughs) So, um, So as I was making decisions as to putting them there, to me, at Black Lives Matter belongs to the African American community. Um, it's something that uh, it's a movement that is 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 part of their community, but the white community needs to recognize that Black Lives Matter and say Black Lives Matter to us. Um, that movement doesn't belong to us. Um, that movement belongs to the African American community, but we need to stand with them and recognize that their lives are important and have not been looked at in the last 
many, many years as being important. So that's why um, I feel like I felt like it was really important to put the sign up. Um, Vincent was standing with me when we put the sign up and he was kind of going, okay, this is okay. Um, but as I was putting letters up, I had people drive by the church um, and yell thank you several times um, in acknowledgement that a large um, institution that looked primarily white was acknowledging that Black Lives Matter. So just to, just to clarify, um, this is something you're pretty passionate about, obviously, uh, but it was the entire pastoral staff that made the decision with the exact verbiage, not yours. Yes. Now, yeah, that was. It you was, volunteered to actually put, put the words on the sign after we collectively decided what we thought we should do it. Yeah, they collectively decided to quote what to put on the sign. And I am the one who happens to be at the church building more than other people because that's what organists tend to be at the church building because that's where the organ is. So um, so I was there and was able to, to put the, the letters on the sign, which I actually felt like was a privilege. So, um, you know, some of the feedback that we received, everybody, uh, from a good handful of our congregants, many of which... Are, are individuals that are pouring into our community on a regular basis um, and are some of the most generous and amazing people that I know are pushing back against the message because they feel like what we're saying is something that is overtly political and that we are making a stance on behalf of everyone in our local church when the reality is it's the pastoral staff that is saying this. And so um, what we're hearing consistently from a lot of the people that have been emailing us and texting us and calling us, and we're, we're grateful for you all doing that, we want that, is that, um, one, why are we being so political? And two, why are we not saying all lives matter? It's offensive to some that we are saying Black lives matter as opposed to all lives matter. Um, I, I think it's appropriate to lob that question maybe to you, Jackie, uh, first, uh, we've asked you to be here. What are your thoughts on it? Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. I came to Tabernacle um, in 2017, right when um, a group of people were thinking about doing the race dialogue. And it was a very informative time for me. Um, for one, because it allowed me to confront my own trauma, the um, pain that I felt as a black woman, but also in a white community, which was very risky and sometimes it was very uncomfortable for me. Um, so when I hear people say um, all lives matter in response to black lives matter, it, it makes me feel like people don't wanna take the time to do the work, to be uncomfortable with the fact that over 400 years, black lives have not mattered. And, and I can actually say that for two reasons, because um, when Black Lives Matter, the hashtag and the movement first organized, I think it was about six years ago, I was one of them. I was one of those people that said all lives matter. And it was because I didn't feel like I wanted to make white people, my white friends, uncomfortable. I didn't. I wanted to keep things status quo. Um, but the more over these last three years that I've dug into how I feel as a black woman 
in the midst of racial, systematic racial oppression, it, it does something to my heart to know that my church is standing with me as a black woman to say that I matter. Um, when I see the images of George Floyd's murder on TV, it raises um, something in me that I really can't, it's a guttural trauma that I feel because in my mind, what I'm watching is a public lynching. It is a man being held against his will, crying out that he can't breathe with a group of people standing around him, wishing, wanting to help, but knowing that if they do, they'll be murdered too. Um, and so that's pretty traumatic for me as a black woman. I have sons, I have a husband. I know that at any time that could be one of them. And so I stayed um, after my internship at Tabernacle, I stayed on as a, and became a member because I believed in the authentic work and the hearts of the people, not just for me as a black woman, but for all the other ethnicities that are represented in Tabernacle, trying to make a difference as a body of Christ. That meant something to me personally. And the, um, I changed so much because of the love and the struggle that we all did together. And so to see that on a sign um, means a lot to me. It means you care about me as a person. And I appreciate that. Um, on Monday here in Roanoke, I'm one of um, two black chaplains in my department. I think there are 10 of us now. And I turned the corner to go to work on Monday afternoon. And there was a group of people mostly white people kneeling on one knee for nine minutes as I turned the corner. And again, that spoke to me that my company, my hospital system cares about me as a black person. And so all lives do matter, but black life, the black life has not mattered for 400 years. Sorry, I have a I have a follow up question for you, but first, yeah, I, yeah sorry about that. Um, but at first, I, I at least want to kind of lob out to the to the others. Jusha, do you have any thoughts on this of Black Lives I Matter? I am versus? just so touched with what Jackie had to say. Just it just does a deep work in me. As a person of color, why would I say that Black Lives Matter to us? I've been thinking about that a whole lot this, especially past two weeks. And I was thinking of this story growing up in a very populated country where there were more seats than the number of seats in a bus. My parents and grandparents taught us as little children, not just Christian values, but basic manners, that when there's your neighbor there, you stand up and offer your seat to them. Um, they are probably have worked very hard the whole day and they probably need some comfort. Maybe the person is pregnant. Maybe it's an el elderly person. Just it's managed to stand up and offer your seat. And when this whole thing came about as a person of color, and I do have a child who is a person of color, and I can say, yeah, my life matters, but no, 
I would give my seat for my black brothers and sisters because the amount of trauma I see, and also as a chaplain, I can see the amount of pain people are going through. Mothers just crying that their kids are not gonna be able to come home. That's too much, something needs to be done. I am so willing to give my seat to my black brothers and sisters. Meg, how about you? I've been thinking about um, this idea that in order to heal a wound, you have to expose the wound. Um, that even like in AA, that the the first step is admitting you have a problem, right? Like that that we don't have control over the lives that of our lives that something has become uncontrollable. And I think for me, um, it feels like naming while certainly all lives matter, naming that black lives matter specifically from a predominantly white and historically white institution um, is a way of confessing that something has gotten out of control and that something needs healing and that we don't know how to get to that healing yet, but we know in order to move forward, we have to have exposure and that requires conversation and that requires discomfort. And um, Jackie and I had a great conversation yesterday and we talked a little about this podcast that we'd both been listening to um, where the man um, in the podcast says, you know, black bodies have been uncomfortable around white bodies for a really long time. And there are generational reasons why that is, right? Um, the horrors of slavery on the black body and that for white folks to enter into conversations that make them uncomfortable um, and to try to lean into that, like that's holy work and that matters. And so I think that this idea makes us uncomfortable, but I don't think that's a reason to, to shy away from it. I think that's a reason to lean in, to expose the wound, to let it get some fresh air so we can figure out how to be a part of the healing. Um, Jackie, we spent a lot of time talking as I was your supervisor back in the day. Uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about all kinds of stuff. And one of the, one of the things that stood out to me regularly was, you know, you you said earlier, you, you showed up at a time where Tabernacle was trying to spend the better part of a year really delving into race, uh, and trying to do it bravely and honestly in a way that we had just a couple of years before that with something that many would say is the most sensitive thing to talk about in the world, which is sexuality. But the reality is race is harder to talk about than anything, it appears. And one of the, one of the insights that we had early on was that everybody's unique. There is no monolith. Like it's like it'd be ridiculous for any of our congregants of color to feel like they need to step up and speak on behalf of the African-American community. You know, that everybody's voice is unique. And we we were really careful not to try to approach tokenism or create a poster child scenario and but it was it was a difficult dynamic in that we kind of felt like the choir showed up like people that were already kind of on the same page are the ones that actively participated and we just didn't know how to handle it like how do white people talk to white people about this and and one of the comments that you made to me on more than one occasion was the surprise that you had in the shame you brought up the word shame on multiple occasions what are your thoughts on that as you've continued to process it? Honestly, it, it hurt me to see my white brothers and sisters feeling like they had to carry that kind of shame. 
Um, and I still do. I had a long conversation with a, with a young chaplain a um, couple weeks ago and um, I could just see it in her eyes as you know the discomfort of having these real conversations about um, George Floyd's murder and how we were going to address that as a department chaplaincy and her saying that you know I just don't want to feel like I have to carry this burden and for me to say I'm not really expecting you to carry this burden um, race was created by white people um, 400 years ago. And yes, it still affects us now, but there's healing that can come beyond that. I don't think I've ever like, I'm gonna kind of deviate from that question for a minute to tell you like the background work that went on in me after I even left Tabernacle to do my residency at VCU. We were doing a, um, ethics class and there was a documentary that our teacher was showing us about uh, um, grave robbers at MCV who used to rob black um, the graves of black people who had died so they could do medical experiments and um, on them and so it was a documentary that was created by I believe the African-American studies department at VCU and um, so my professor had it on in the class and we were watching it. And in that video was images of the medical students with these dead black bodies that they had dissected and they were posing for pictures with them. And so that image rolled over several loops within this documentary to the point where I eventually grabbed my bags and walked out of the class. And once I got out of the West Hospital, I cried all the way to my car on 8th Street in the 8th Street deck. That was a Wednesday when that happened. And I was just so hurt. But the place that I chose to heal, I came to Bible study that night. I came to our Wednesday night service at Tabernacle. And that's where I felt like I could do my healing because I had done this work of exposing this pain inside of my heart that I didn't really even know was there from generations. But it was the people that I knew that I could trust, who loved me, who cared about me, that I could really come there and sit and feel what I felt and heal from that pain. And so I don't expect the shame um, I think it's us doing this work together that makes a difference. I think that's why it's important to see all the different people, all the different ethnicities in the streets protesting. It's not just Black people. I think we're starting to get it now that get beyond the shame, get beyond the guilt, and get into what really matters the most, and that's healing um, our country from racism. Well. Um, any, any other insight for any of you all on this, what Jackie just said, or shame in general that folks are carrying? I'm concerned about um, the children that I minister to in children's ministry, and I'm thinking 98% of our tabernacle kids uh, from our uh, main service are 
um, white kids. And so how are they feeling about just wearing their white skin? So I've been prayerfully thinking about that a whole bunch. And I really feel every white person needs to know that yes, there is horrific, horrendous things that the white person did out of just feeling superior. But in my personal experience, in addition to that story is also multiple white people who came as missionaries from all over the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Scotland, Danish missionaries, British. They came and started railroads, hospitals, um, taught us about Christ, sometimes started colleges. And I am a product, I am a Christian today because of that missionary work. And as I was struggling with this whole white skin, how did, what does it mean to be white? Um, my children in my ministry taught me a whole bunch. I was a little afraid. I wasn't sure how people in church perceived me. And there were at least four different stories I can tell you. First, it was um, the Snipe Boys. They adored me from head to toe, never looked at me any differently, accepted me for who I was. And then I saw the incarnational way in which these white people were serving their black friends and choosing occupations. Um, Mother Katie working in um, the, the Cooper School and a Julian Cooper School. And then after I conjured up a little more courage, I went to a small group and got to know the Corbett's. And there the little girl who I'm so worried about, you know, how does she feel? Does she feel any shame and all that's going on? They chose to put her in an African-American, like predominantly black school. And she is probably one of maybe one, two or three white kids. And I asked her, little Millie, how is it going for you in this school? And then she said, um, every time we have a play, they choose me as the slave, slave owner and just laugh. <laughs> That, that was oh, <laughs> and then uh, I got to know the Kennedys and they 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 ooze social justice in every pore in their body and I was like how do they perceive me how did how did those kids deal with uh, the shame of of wearing white skin and they chose a city school to put their boys in, uh, in and they know all of the Bible. So this whole myth about, uh, you know, people who are standing up for racism do not read the Bible enough. That is so wrong. People are strongly scriptural when they stand up for justice because God is a God of justice and he wants us to bring his kingdom, which is in heaven on earth also. So I can just go on like I just had to take a few steps back and look at the kids and learn from them. My white kids in my ministry, all in elementary school, taught me how to do incarnational racial work of justice. Sorry, Sorry. Judy, uh, you know, a lot of the folks that we are hearing from so far that are struggling with the message that we've put out there to send to our neighbors uh, that we see hurting so, so much is that they're folks that are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. There are exceptions, of course. I'm not trying to lump any one group together at all. But so far, that's been one of the major trends. 
And again, as I said, kind of in the intro, you know, a lot of these are folks that are investing heavily in the community and relating to African-American brothers and sisters with dignity and eye contact. And it's been beautiful to observe. And so it feels like such a, an interesting contradiction in my own heart to get pushback with all lives matter when I know the way that they're choosing to live their lives. Um, and it seems to me that some of it is that just not knowing what to do with the past or feeling like they have responded to what's happened in the past by doing what they're doing, by taking action. But there's clearly a disconnect or a misunderstanding generationally that we've observed before. Do you have any insights on that? Hmm. I know what I feel about it. I would not want to speak for anybody else in my generation because everybody comes from that in a really different way. Everybody's experience of um, the late, the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, was different. Um, and so I don't know that I can speak for anybody but me. Um, I lived through school integration, but I lived through um, a very nice, gentle part of school integration. Um, I missed the, the hard time of Richmond school integration, which was hard on both the white community and the African-American community. Um, and people who lived through the, who were in school in the 70s, lived a total different um, view, uh, experience of, of integration than um, any of the rest of us did. Um, it was a different, it was a different experience. Um, I expect for both white and black people. Um, I, I watched marches. I had hope that, that, that things were gonna change. Um, I did work to walk alongside African-American people and feel like I got there. Um, my family saves everything. I mean, my family saves everything. Shocking. So, shocking. <laughs> so, I have my great, 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 great grandfather's receipts. So, I know that my grandmother's family owned slaves because I have the receipts for when they bought slaves, when they traded slaves. Um, and so I know that that happened. Um, so that's been, a, that was, it has been an interesting thing. Um, walking with Denise through some of those things has, has allowed me some freedom from that. Um, just in acknowledging that and knowing that has um, has interestingly allowed me some freedom. I don't have to think about, did my family own slaves? I know they did. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a sense that I, I, I know that there was benefit from that. Um, my mom could tell me stories of growing, of when she was little, she grew up with the children of the people who had worked on the Clark family farm in Evergreen, Virginia. Um, and they grew up together. And by that point, as she put it, nobody had anything. Um, 
the white people didn't have anything and the black people didn't have anything and everybody just kind of worked together trying to eat. Um, but, um, you know, you, you, you know that life was, that life was different and my ancestors made choices that um, I have to look around today and figure out what choices I'm making that are for convenience and for um, fitting into society, um, what's acceptable and maybe not right. Um, because I know that my ancestors made choices that they thought went along with the way society worked at that point. And so um, that's what it's done for me is kind of make me feel like I should be looking around at what I'm doing that, um, that I think is acceptable because um, all of society thinks it's acceptable or quote, all of white society thinks it's acceptable. Um, how am I living my life that needs to change? Um, and we'll do that. That's a job that everybody has to do every generation because in each generation, there are things that are going on that are not right um, and need to be changed. Sometimes I think we think when Jesus saves us, he makes us perfect. And, or we can kind of earn our way into good, perfect. And that's never the case. Um, there's always a need for salvation. Even when it looks like you're doing really, really good things, people do really good things for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> so. You, you, Judy said on Sunday during a, a moment in worship when we offered confession and lament that the, all of us are racist. I wondered, do you all agree with that? Any thoughts on that? This notion that inside of all of us, there is racism that we may not be aware of, or maybe we are and we don't do anything about it. What do you think? I do believe that scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there are sins that I am aware of and there are, there are sins I'm not even aware of that I'm committing. Mm -hmm. um, and only God can see our hearts. So number one, we cannot be judging each other and shaming each other because God sees through our hearts. And even within our own communities, even within each color, there could be racism. There's a lot of sectarianism, casteism that I have experienced personally. So that sin is within all of us. I think. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead, Jackie. <laughs> I think we, we, we focus a lot on slavery and, and civil rights. And I think today is where I'm most planting my heart. Um, I heard Sterling, you, your, um, your most recent talk, I get be behind me, I think was the title of it. And in your comments about um, the monument, the, the Lee Monument and some of the other monuments on, on Monument Avenue, you mentioned how racism broke the backs of black people. 
And it's so much more than just that image of breaking backs. It's, it really broke the lives of Black people. It broke families. And it continues to do so. So that's the wound that the wound that will never heal as long as we allow um, this the type of systemic racism to continue in this world. So when we put slogans, even like Black Lives Matter could be a slogan, or on the, the broken on the backs of could be a slogan. When people are really living this and it's not only black people now, because you know what what the forefathers of this country, what they hated the most, they continue through their lust to plant seeds into black women, raping them. And now that seed has continued to grow and grow and grow to the point where this country is more multi-ethnic than ever before. It's become what they hated and it's in it sustain itself through love love of people who will not continue to allow it to happen, who will confront the differences, who will confront sin, and who are willing to make a change. And, um, and so that's my hope. That's what I see. It's not about what happened before. It's what's still going on now. That's the problem. Um, Jerusha works in the correction system. And so we see that you know, black men can even drive on the street or how more often they are arrested. Um, the brutality that we're seeing from the, the, the legal, legal um, system as well as the police um, policing in this country is making the crisis that we're having now. That's what's happening now. So looking back to slavery is fine. But what about now is what I would like to know. Mm -hmm. That's my point of being here today. What about now? What about um, my son and my grandson? Are they mm -hmm. still going to have to face this moving forward? And your families are all involved as well. There is probably somebody of another ethnicity in every one of our families right now. So it affects everybody, not just one race of people. Now, I know those are hard words, but um, I, I think it's important to say the reality of what has happened because of racism. Mm -hmm. I think I, the, sorry. I think opening up conversation for us to hear those things, I think is what changes um, me as a white person. So, you know, Judy said there's a racist in all of us. And I think for most white people, there's a like, but I, I'm not racist. I'm nice. <laughs> and I think for me, there was a process of learning that niceness and justice are not the same thing. And a lot of that came from, from listening, from learning to listen. Uh, for me, I was in seminary in a super multicultural school. And so, um, just by, fact of being in classrooms with people who had different stories for me, not just African-Americans, although that was a big portion of voice that I heard, but there were also people from all over the globe that brought their experiences to that table. And that shaped me. Like, I, I think I referenced this um, in a sermon a few months ago, but um, I remember being a, like around a kitchen table with a group of friends while I was in seminary. And we were just talking about random things that had transformed our lives. And my friend Brandon said um, something about 
having to think about having the talk with his, with his child. And I was like the talk, like the birds and the bees. Like I didn't say that. I just listened. Um, and (laughs) the more that he said, the more I realized he's talking about talking to his child about how you enter as a black boy at age eight or nine about how you interact with police because it could get you killed. And that his father had to have that conversation with him when he was nine and the, the recognition that like Brandon and I can be friends all day long, but we're not the same because he has an experience that's different from mine that I need to hear because I can be nice to him. And that's not the same thing as working to correct the injustice of fathers and mothers having to talk to their sons about how to behave around the police so that you don't get killed because of the color of your skin. Meg, you're actively participating in a clergy group that I think folks would find interesting and helpful. What is it? Yeah, so the BGAV has been doing- What's the the BGAV? The Baptist General Association of Virginia. Did I get that right? I'm still new to Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You did, yay. The Baptist General Association of Virginia has been doing for, I don't know, six or eight years now, um, a group's cohorts of young clergy called Uptick. It's like a a training program for young clergy. They normally last a year and they're normally clergy from all over the United States are in a cohort together and they meet together a couple of times a year in person and then they meet online. And they've tried something new this year. We are kind of an experiment. It's called Uptick Catalyst. And rather than having folks that are all spread out over the country, everyone in my cohort is here in Richmond. And um, the the hope was to create a multiracial cohort of young clergy because we know that race is an, is an issue in culture, right? But it's also an issue in um, a justice issue of Christianity. And so I think the hope of this was creating space for conversation between clergy who have different experience, creating opportunity for listening. So we have, I think, three um, African-American folks. We have um, two, are there two white folks? I'm the only white woman and then uh, a Puerto Rican man and all under the age of 35, four black folks, a Puerto Rican folks, two white folks, um, all under the age of 35 and all on church staffs in our city. And so, um, we've been meeting for, since the beginning of 2020 and our trips have gotten canceled because of coronavirus, but we've continued to meet online and even just creating space um, for me to listen to what is happening, the rumblings, the fear, the pain, the frustration, the um, conflicting conflicting feelings within like black church community. So not all of their churches are one you know race. They're mostly multicultural, but um, I'm thinking of one pastor in particular who said, um, you know, I'm feeling conflicting about, protesting. He's a a black man. Um, because I've been saying up until two weeks ago that, you know, coronavirus is, is killing us as black people that like 90% of the deaths from coronavirus in, um, our state until the beginning of June were black folks. And so I've been telling people to stay home and every week we're sending two to three baskets to people who are grieving the loss of someone from COVID. 
And now all of a sudden everyone's flocking to the streets. And while I want to support a movement, I also want to keep my people safe and I don't want this movement to mean more deaths for my people. So I never would have heard that had I not been in that, had I not been invited into this conversation where it helped me to think differently about um, not just protesting, but kind of a, a recognition like, oh, right, the black community is being hit, hit hardest by coronavirus too. And there are multiple injustices here. Um, yeah, I just, I think listening is really important and being willing to shut our mouths um, and put ourselves in situations where we can hear someone else's experience. And I think that's what um, the BJV was trying to do by creating this catalyst program was like clergy of different races and different experiences, but all in the same city have the possibility to create movement um, in a way that doesn't happen if everyone's scattered throughout, that we can be a part of creating change in our city, that we can be a part of understanding what the gospel looks like, what the kingdom of God looks like in our city um, a little bit more because we're together and getting to hear everyone's perspective on that. Sounds amazing. Um, one of the things I think it's important as we start to wrap up that we acknowledge is that to, to circle around where we started, which is that in in the pastoral staff coming together to say um, all lives, all black lives matter to us, as opposed to all lives matter, that it is perceived that we are making a political statement or that it's participation in activism, you know, and suddenly uh, th things start to divide up really, really, really uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that makes it hard to put it back together. We know for certain that some of our congregants are actively out there protesting in the streets, participating actively on the streets. We know that there are others that are, that are at the complete opposite end of the spectrum that are protesting through social media with a counter message that are very upset by what's happening on the streets. And one of the things that we've always said at Tabernacle is we think that that's, that's the best way to do it. That, church at its best is people that are not like-minded coming together and finding that the one thing that they have in common is an acknowledgement that they're loved by Christ and that they're to be used as instruments of grace and peace and redemption in the world as agents of Christ. So we love, in other words, that we aren't nodding heads. But the struggle with this in this moment right now is where lines are being drawn so clearly is what is the role of the prophetic voice? So to those of you that are very concerned by the message that's been put on the sign or even some of the things that you're hearing us say today, I would just remind you that the prophetic voice, and this goes also to those of you that are out there marching on the streets, it's a reminder that in our tradition, our understanding of prophetic is that we're a mouthpiece of God. And we have to be careful that we don't get so far ahead out there that we forget that it starts with the message God has implanted in our hearts. Prophetic is starts with the vertical relationship with Christ, and then it goes horizontal to the world. And so we as a, we as a, a pastoral staff of you, our congregation, need you to hear us say that we are not making a statement because we're trying to be activists or participate in the political system in a way that sucks you in, whether you like it or not, but rather we are speaking prophetically as pastors and shepherds that feel convicted We've thought about it, we've prayed about it, and we're speaking out of it through our faith. 
even in this little circle and that's represented today, I guarantee if you go deep enough with this, we do not all see this the same way, whatever it is. <laughs> and that's the way it's going to be. You know, Judy and I go to head to head on a weekly basis on all kinds of things. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I, each of these people gets to be referee at different times. And, you know, Jerusha has had a very brave voice among the staff since she's come, offering a, a counter to something that the rest of us might be all saying in unison. And that's the way we want it. But hear this. We are unified in this, that we see our brothers and sisters hurting. And we need to acknowledge that pain. And so we have in solidarity with those that are suffering because if there's anything we know to be true of Jesus is that he goes first and foremost to those that are suffering and calls us to go there with him. So just know that we're trying. We hope this is the beginnings of a conversation. Um, anybody else have anything that you wanna add before we wrap up? I am just so blessed to be part of Tabernacle at this time. It's just, I have grown so much even in the past four months and people have been very patiently working with me and holding my hand, never condemned me, accepted my answers, asked me thought-provoking questions and wholly, wholly helped in my growth. And I am forever grateful to everybody at Tabernacle. I, what is it doing? I also um, wanna say how much my time in Tabernacle has shaped me into the pastor and the chaplain that I am today. I am so grateful to have um, been there at the time when we were talking about race and we were talking about gender and um, how that informs the work that I do for people every day. And I'm grateful for all of you and, and to God for you know giving me this opportunity. It's such a, was a, such a unique experience for me. Um, but I'm, I'm a better person, a better American, a better mother, um, a better Christian because of what I've been through um, with all of you. And so I appreciate y'all. You're muted, Meg. Thanks. I'd like to add one thing. Um, I'm also, I mean, tremendously grateful to be a part of this community. I think that um, it is rare to have a group of people that thinks and feels and believes differently about many things and chooses to stay in a relationship. Um, I do think that relationships are, are the thing that change us, the thing that transform us, um, relationship with God and relationship with others. And I'm just, I'm grateful that, um, I hope that this prompts conversation, right? Like, I don't think we're trying to offer the answer. And I don't think there is one answer. Um, I don't think we're trying to throw a hand grenade into anything. Um, but I do think we're trying to open up a deeper level of conversation around what, what is God calling us to? What is um, the church's role in responding to pain, um, in being a part of the work of healing? Um, and I think that I had a really good conversation with JJ a few weeks ago after church where we were kind of bickering, like we have different views on this um, <laughs> and we were bickering about it. And um, one of the things I realized was like, oh, I'm saying to him, I feel convicted to do X and he's feeling fearful because he feels like, oh, he's now supposed to do that too. 
And that wasn't my intention at all. So I think it's really important that we say like, we're all going to be called to respond to this differently. And that is the work of the spirit among us. And that is good and beautiful. So when you hear someone saying, this is what I feel called to, that doesn't mean you need to feel pressure to be called to that because that might not be what God's calling you to at all. But if we're neglecting to listen inward to what God is calling us to, that's, that's when we have a problem. So just a challenge for all of us to be listening to that voice of God, but also to not expect for everyone else, either in our church community or in our city, to be responding in the same way we do. That the gift of the community of God, the gift of the Spirit of God, is that we each have a role to play and unfolding what that role might be is, you know, the start of our calling in this. Yep. Well stated, pastors. Uh, if there's uh, if there's anything that's very clear is that we are we have a long road ahead, but we believe that the road ahead is an Emmaus road, and we believe that Christ is going to guide us and reveal surprising things to us uh, that that point to resurrection. And I'm grateful that I'm blessed uh, to get to, to to walk this road with each of you. And to those of you that are watching with each of you, thank you for the grace that you're giving us as we try to lead you. Uh, we've, uh, we've kind of alluded to a book that some of us have been reading off and on through the last couple of years to this quote that leadership is ultimately disappointing your own people, like your inner circle people. That's y'all, the people that are watching this Zoom at a rate that they can absorb. If we're not challenging youth, then we'll never go anywhere. And if we're only challenging you and we push too hard, then you just don't go anywhere. You, you just go away. And so we're trying to do the best we can to disappoint at a, at, a, at a pace that everybody can absorb because we don't believe Christ wants us to be comfortable. We believe that Christ wants us to build the kingdom of God together. So thanks for your grace as we struggle with how to lead. And thanks for your vulnerability as you all share with us what God has put on your heart in the days ahead. We're going to wrap up to be continued. Blessings, friends. Hope you have a great rest of the day.